Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, the 1st of September, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, back here on the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to return to this microphone and to this audience after a bit of a respite, a vacation. But I've been raring to go and excited to be here. Thank you very much for listening. A new broadcast month here on the program, where our website, our online home, is GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen live, which we encourage between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's every weekday. If you can't listen live, we have a podcast growing in popularity. Thanks to all of you. Totally free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's what we've got in store for you on the show today. Molly Hemingway, later this hour. I think she might have a few things to say about the Trump investigation and Mar-a-Lago and President Biden's giving some speech tonight about democracy, supposedly. We will ask Molly about that. In our next hour, U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy, who's also a medical doctor, he is going to join us in studio here in Washington, D.C., the Republican of Louisiana, right here. Looking forward to that conversation. And in our final hour, Reese Davis, the host of College Game Day on ESPN, college football guy, he will be here to talk about not just the week one matchups upcoming, but also a few other issues across the landscape of college football and college sports. I'm a big sports guy. Reese Davis, I think, is just terrific, and I'm looking forward to having that discussion with him in our final hour, the happy hour, here on The Guy Benson Show. I'd like to begin by telling you a story now that I'm back from this holiday, and the story ties into a news theme and a political issue that we have talked about many times on this show. And I think at some point you might get a gist or a sense of where I'm going with this. So here's the story. It was, gosh, was it just yesterday? It was yesterday. When you fly long distances and there's all sorts of moving parts to a trip, you come. You sometimes come to lose sight of what day it is and where you are. You're sort of like out of your own body. I think I'm mostly unjet-lagged at this point, pretty sure. But yesterday, we flew back, Adam and I, from Europe to the United States, and our final leg of this very lengthy journey was from Dublin, Ireland. And we got to the airport in Dublin plenty early because we had heard you need a lot of time said, okay. So we get there. It's probably, what, mid-morning. And you get to an airport, and it's a pretty normal deal, standard. If you're used to airports in the United States, there's not that much different about what we did. 
you go and you check in. You've got your boarding passes and you've got all your luggage and you wheel over to security. And we waited in quite a long line to get to security where they put you into new lines. Then you get into, you know, the little area where you're putting all of your earthly belongings basically into these little trays and shuttling them down a conveyor belt into the x-ray machine or whatever they're going to call it. And you've got your electronics that you've taken out, right? If it's larger than a phone, that has to come out. And if you've got liquids, they have to be a certain size, and they like you to put them in a little Ziploc bag and take them out and all of it. And we had a real stickler in our lane. This older gentleman was, like, interrogating every person and micromanaging the whole process. And I was just trying to not be rude or some sort of, you know, American tourist, so I— was very polite. I want to say, yeah, I know the drill, sir. Thank you. Fine. All the luggage goes through. Adam got a secondary screening with some swabbing of his belongings and his hands for, I guess, bomb residue or something. So that was an extra delay. So we finally get through security. Now, typically at that point, what do you do? You take your luggage, you take your traveling companions, and you walk down to your gate. You cool your heels, maybe get a drink, maybe get a bite to eat. Until it's time to board. Not so in this case. Because there are so many travelers who go from Ireland to America. They've decided to set up basically U.S. Customs and Border Patrol and Border Control on the Irish side of the equation. So normally if you're flying internationally, you come back home, you get off the plane, you get herded into a separate little area of the airport where you have to go through all of the immigration stuff, which is the hint of where I'm going with this. But in Ireland, I guess the traffic is so heavy to the United States that the U.S. government has set up their own security system on the Irish side. So when you fly back to the U.S., you don't have to go through all of it there. Interesting. I've only seen this once before, I think. But I guess that's the system they have in Ireland. So we didn't know this. So we get to the U.S. security line. You have to do it all over again. You wait in the long line going, you know, back and forth in the little, you know, little, what do they even call those things? Like the tape that they have where you're just winding your way up to the extremely exciting moment where you can get checked all over again. So that took a long time. We get, and here it comes, out comes the laptop. Right out come the liquids. In this case, because it's the U.S., you have to take your shoes off this time. Through the conveyor belt, they go for yet another scan. I guess the Irish one wasn't good enough. We need an America one, too. Then you get to the other side. Fine. Are you done yet? No, you are not. You get in another line. I mean, this is now well over an hour. You get into another line, which is the U.S. Border Patrol the U.S. Border Control screening system. And you wait your turn, and you stand there with your passport and your boarding pass, and finally when they call you, you come up, you hand over these documents, they check your documents, they make sure that your papers are all in order, they ask you a few questions, they're checking your photograph, is this you, how long were you here, where are you headed, all that stuff. And then finally when they're satisfied, the officer says, okay, You're free to go, and then you head to your gate. So this was a lengthy ordeal. 
I don't tell you this whole story just to whine about travel annoyances. I'll do that later in the show, actually. So that's there's a tease. Now, the point to all of this is after going through all of those steps and coming through the Customs and Border Patrol checkpoint, the first thing that you see on the wall, they have an American flag, they have an Irish flag in this case, and then hanging right there are the smiling official portraits of President Joe Biden and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Sort of like, ah, welcome through the American system. We're the ones in charge. You're welcome. Now, I understand if you are abroad and you're coming back to the United States, it would be derelict not to have any system in place to make sure that people getting on airplanes destined for the United States have been screened somewhat thoroughly. I have no problem with that. I've gone through it many times. It has never bothered me before. This one bothered me. And you can probably guess why. After going through all of this stuff, I'm looking at these two politicians, the president and his DHS secretary, disgraceful. And I, as a United States citizen, had just had to subject myself to all of this stuff. Which, again, under normal circumstances, I'd generally be fine with or at least resign myself. This is sort of, you know, part of the deal. But then you juxtapose that experience, a law-abiding U.S. citizen with a U.S. passport, a natural-born citizen, with every right to be in the United States, simply trying to come back legally to my own country. I had to go through all of that stuff, and it took seemingly forever. And by the way, if I had decided, you know what, I don't, I don't feel like this today. I don't want to do this. I just want to be in America. I don't care what these people say. I'm just going to, like, bull rush the CBP checkpoint. I'm going to try to run right past them and refuse to comply. What would have happened to me? Would I have been detained? Would I have been likely charged? Yes. Because these are the rules. These are the laws The United States is a sovereign country. Even if you live there, you have to abide by our immigration standards, practices, and laws. That is the social contract. That is the agreement that we've made. And yet, at the southern border in this country, you have thousands of people simply walking into the country every day. And you have thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, 50 to 60,000, in fact, every month walking into the country and not getting stopped. And they are allowed in many cases to stay here. In fact, it is really hard under the new rules under this administration to deport them if they're found, if they're if you can even look for them. And if they've committed the crime of entering the country illegally, that is not a deportable offense. Even if they have been convicted of subsequent crimes of a whole array of categories, they are not eligible for deportation. There's like a welcome mat. If you don't abide by our laws, if you come into this country unlawfully, welcome. 
We might process you. We might not have the resources or manpower to catch you. But you'll be, in all likelihood, there's a very good likelihood that you will be able to stay. People flying in who are foreigners to the United States have to be vaccinated. Come through the southern border, not the case. Some of these rules are scrupulously enforced. Right. The U.S. immigration laws are scrupulously enforced or were against me, a U.S. citizen just coming back from my vacation. But if you are an illegal immigrant coming from all over the world, by the way, to Mexico, to the southern border, there is a very good likelihood, a very good chance based on the data and based on the policies and based on the incentives that if you just walk across the border undetected, or detected and they can't catch you, or you turn yourself in and get processed, you're going to be able to stay, and it'll be very hard to ever remove you. And you know what? Even as a non-hardcore border hawk, that really bothers me. That pisses me off. The border and immigration laws of the United States of America either matter or they don't. And what we're hearing from the powers that be, the elites running the country right now, is that the laws actually do matter a lot for some people, like U.S. citizens in this case, but they matter a hell of a lot less for illegal immigrants. What on earth are we doing? Again, if I tried to rush through the security line and refuse the screening from CBP, I would have been tackled, handcuffed, detained, interrogated, and probably charged. I guess my mistake would have been not just coming to the southern border. What Just like, what an absolute disgrace. And I think it was what set me off on all of this was seeing the photos of Biden and Mayorkas right there greeting me, having gone through this whole annoying hassle the right way. And those are the exact people who are directly responsible for the border crisis that they don't even acknowledge exists. They say the border is secure. They say the border is closed. People worried about it, just shut up. You're probably a little racist. 3.4 million encounters under this president alone. Millions. We're almost at a million known gotaways under this president alone. This crisis is raging down there. They're allowing it to happen. They are causing it to happen deliberately. And then here are the rest of us, a bunch of idiots, just doing the right thing and obeying the law. And that's just a tiny microcosm, by the way. What I went through was like an hour and a half of inconvenience. Imagine being someone who wants to legally immigrate to this country and you've done everything the right way. What a chump you must feel like to go through this week after month after year in some cases to try to get all the paperwork correct and go through correctly and go through all these, you know, hearings and all of that to get the piece of paper that the government is basically making a total mockery of down at the border every day. It is grossly unfair. It is deeply unserious. Either our Immigration laws matter or they don't. And it feels right now 
like they matter for people who are law-abiding and they don't for those who aren't. What kind of a message, what kind of a policy, what kind of a country is that? The Guy Benson Show. Just getting started back from vacation. Glad to be here in the USA. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I just unburdened myself in the opening monologue about these totally flagrant, incoherent double standards on immigration. And part of what probably also fueled that frustration was this exchange. We had Peter Ducey on the show in my absence early in the, uh, earlier in the week talking about this with White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre on this very subject. If you missed it, here's Cut 17. How come migrants are allowed to come into this country unvaccinated, but world-class tennis players are not? Are you you're talking about which world-class tennis player? Novak Djokovic. So they're two different things. They're two and, different things. But so are, how is it two different things? Somebody unvaccinated comes over on a plane. You say that's not okay. Somebody walks into Texas or Arizona unvaccinated. They're allowed to stay. But, Why? But that's not how it works. Like we actually no. Happening. I know that that's not what you guys want to happen, but that is what ha- what is happening. But that's not. It's not like somebody walks over and <laughs> that's not that's that not how. Exactly what's happening. We well, thousands of people are walking in a day. Some of them turn themselves over. Some of them are caught. Tens of thousands a week are not. That is what is happening. Does she even know? Honestly. Does she understand what's happening? She's like, well, they're totally different things. Why? This is great work by Peter Ducey. Great. Why are they different? Just, well, it's not really how this works. Explain that. How so? You dig down a little further. Well, it's not like people are just walking in here. Yes, they are. <laughs> like, what? What planet are you on? By the thousands. Every single day for the last two years, basically, this has been going on. And the reason that she has to play dumb, I suspect in this case, is because they don't actually have any satisfactory answers to any of this stuff, right? They're trying to end, they're fighting in court to end Title 42, to end the public health emergency, which was the mechanism at the southern border to quickly remove people. They're trying to end that because activists want them to do that, but the mandate on vaccinations coming in legally remains in place. How does that make any sense? It doesn't. So we get answers like that from KJP and the administration. Molly Hemingway is here next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. 
GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All sorts of goodies there related to the program. Much content. Very exciting. Plus, you can listen live there. The podcast is free on demand there. GuyBensonShow.com. With us now, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author of Rigged. You can follow her on social media at MZ Hemingway. So, Molly, welcome back. Good to have you here. Great to be here. Before we get to other matters, I'm informed by my staff that while I was out of the country on vacation, you have had, I don't even know what to call this, a glow up, a makeover extraordinaire, a new look Molly Hemingway. I haven't seen you on the air since I left. Uh, It's getting just rave reviews. What have you done here, Molly? I'm very excited to see you on TV next. So I thought you were going to say that your staff reported that I was complaining about the pictures you were posting on social media of your amazing adventure (laughs) overseas. I mean, it looked wonderful, but at some point I was like, okay, it's actually just making me feel bad. I would like to be on this fun adventure. Uh, Yeah, no, I I did get my hair done, but as I normally do, I I also got a tan, and I think the tan – I think I might just be so translucent white normally that getting a tan – (laughs) really made everything look different. Uh, So I have now been sent an image, a screenshot of you with this new look. Molly, I mean, you've gone blonde here. Yeah. Don't you also think that the New York studios, they're like so bright, they make you look different? Or is that just me? Because I was back in the D.C. studios and I looked back to normal last night. I mean, you you look pretty blonde. I have to say, going blonde on Fox News, very bold choice. That's some groundbreaking stuff. You look great. You look absolutely great. I just want to say that for the record. Let's move on to real stuff. But I, you know, okay. right before, right before we had you on, they're like, "Have you seen Molly?" I was like, "What?" I felt like did something bad happen? No, no. It's all very good news. Uh, very cool stuff. And I know that women in media, especially, get so much scrutiny and attacks over looks. It's just, it's awful. And in this case, I think, I mean, whatever critics you might have out there, you're just, you're just flaunting it. You're strutting your stuff, and we support it here at this program. <laughs> I'm just going to state that for the record. Okay, Molly, with that being said, uh, the president of the United States will be speaking tonight in Philadelphia. The White House is preparing the media that he's going to give a dark speech, sort of painting this dystopian vision about uh, the Republicans and the MAGA crowd and uh, the threats to democracy. What do you think the angle is here? I feel like if the Democrats wanted to continue maybe some of the momentum they feel like they've got electorally or in the polls. I'm not sure this is the ticket, and yet this is what he's doing. Uh, Your thoughts in advance of what we're going to hear from Biden tonight? You know, I think they have very bad options in the Democrat Party right now. They control everything in Washington, D.C., the presidency, both chambers, The policies that have been put forth with almost no opposition within the Democrat Party are not very popular, whether that's foreign or domestic policy, um, border issues, uh, the economy, inflation, energy policy. They're not popular. And so when you can't run on your own agenda, it does make sense that you might really move to being negative about your opponents. But I think the reason why it's not a great idea for Joe Biden in particular is that his entire candidacy and campaign and inaugural speech were all about how he would be this hopeful unifier, a competent unifier. 
He's already <laughs> not done the Tompkins part, and now he's not being a unifier. I mean, he's really not being a unifier, obviously. Oh, and he hasn't for quite some time, right? He was talking right. about George Wallace and, you know, uh, all the segregationists. So Jefferson Davis, I believe, made an appearance in that speech about so-called voting rights. Now this is, you know, a speech about democracy. And here's the thing, Molly, I don't think that there are, you know, no points that can be made about the current constellation of the Republican Party that they're like, a, you know, beyond reproach on on certain issues related to elections or anything like that. I also find it absolutely and utterly pointless to listen to one word that this man has to say on the subject either. Someone who has, you know, played along with election trutherism when it comes to Stacey Abrams in Georgia, for example, someone who just went fully lawless doing something that the White House admitted for a while at least, would be unlawful with the student loans thing. I mean, if we want to sort of go into a battle of, you know, whataboutism finger-pointing, I feel like, let me put this as kindly as I can, this is a flawed messenger on multiple levels for the Democratic Party on this subject. I think a lot of people would love to have someone talk about things that matter to the American people, to tone down the rhetoric. I mean, I didn't love... Biden's inaugural speech, but the speech was all about toning things down and how he would be, he was promising and would commit to that toning down. As you note, he has a track record of uh, bad rhetoric. You know, he he claimed that Mitt Romney was going to put black people back in chains. I mean, he doesn't, he has a long track record of kind of being a jerk, but he also has a long track record of not being a jerk. And he could have risen to that higher thing. I think so many people voted for him thinking it would be an escape from mean rhetoric and to instead do much meaner rhetoric, call every single person who didn't vote for him a Nazi, essentially. That's, that's just really the opposite direction from where he should be going. Yeah, and, really and he said, he said in, his, in his victory speech, right, that Saturday after the, after the election in November, he gave his victory speech in Delaware, and everyone was in their cars honking at him, remember that? And he said that his mandate from the American people was to bring down the temperature, to work together, to not treat the opposition as enemies and all of that. And then, you know, within months he was screaming about how Republicans are Bull Connor because they want photo ID for voting. And now, you know, the the White House is throwing around the term like, you know, fascists and they're talking about threats to democracy. It just it feels sort of, you know, desperate and uh, synthetic and manufactured. And again, there are points to be made against Trump and other people. But from this guy, I'm not going to watch this tonight. I don't know. Some people might. I have no interest at all hearing from him about this. You you really point out what's important, too. We all know that negative campaigning works, whether you're Republican or Democrat. And unfortunately, it works because people like to hear negative. You know, they 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 vote in part because they hear negative messages. But I do think that there should be a difference between even pundits who are really intense in their conversation and those top elected leaders and not to not to make it be about all the Americans. I mean, if you want to say, I don't like what Mitch McConnell is doing with this vote, that's fine. When you say everyone who didn't vote for me is is worse than Hitler, that's, that's such an escalated increase. It's really not appropriate. Yeah. And then you'll hear from our friends on the left saying things like, oh, it's pretty rich to hear Molly Hemingway, and Guy Benson talking about the problematic 
overheated rhetoric of politicians considering Trump, right, and they can make that point, and I think it's a fair point, but their whole thing was we have to not do that anymore, and Joe Biden's pitch was vote for me, I'm not that. I'm the opposite of that. So the finger-pointing back at Trump doesn't actually defend what Biden's doing based on his his primary rationale for running for this position. Right. And, you know, and I think, again, rhetoric gets hot on all sides. There are people who are really inappropriate in how they talk. But this is a very serious escalation because it goes after the American people. And you do worry when you're going after large groups of people who are identified by how they vote or what their politics are. Historically, that doesn't work out well. So for all the people who claim to be so worried about authoritarianism or totalitarianism, this is this is when the loud clanging bell should be going off. And, you know, you do have to worry about it on your own side, on other sides. But this is this is just not healthy. And again, it's really only because there's no policy to go on. And I think a lot of people in D.C. Yep. understand that if we're talking about inflation, if we're talking about the border, if we're talking about the economy, that's not going to go well for Democrats. And that's, I, that's a bad situation that they're in, but it's of their own making. And it would be that's better right. to and, work on improving those things than attack people. And just like the tone police, right, and the rhetoric police out in full force when Trump or any Republican says something untoward or even you know, relatively uh, you know, harmless – but they work it up into a whole big outrage. And then, you know, on, on the other side, it's just sort of like the, the police are off duty. The self-appointed police are off duty because they agree with that harsh rhetoric because that's their side doing it. So an example would be here's President Biden, you know, just a few days ago. I know this clip has made the rounds in Cut 24. Listen. For those brave right-wing Americans who say it's all about keeping America, keeping America's independent and safe. If you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15. You need something a little more than a gun. No, I'm not joking. Think about this. Think about the rationale we use. Uh, he's kind of made this point several times, Molly. He likes this point. He's sort of like, oh, yeah, you want your, your guns and your Second Amendment to potentially uh, challenge the government? Good luck. We've got the nukes. <laughs> and it's like he, he – I don't know if he's thought this through, but he says it a lot. This one was F-15s, but he's used nukes before. In this sort of uh, this illustration that apparently he thinks is a very good point. Well, and it completely undercuts his main message. His main message right now is that the January 6th riot nearly brought down the entire country. And that was with people who were unarmed or armed with like flagpoles. So those people could have nearly brought down the country. But on the other hand, you need an F-15 if you want to bring down the country. I mean, he's completely at odds with his own argument. Uh, not to mention that he's just like factually incorrect. He keeps on saying that you can't buy a cannon. You can buy one now. You could have bought one at any point in time in the American history. Yeah, no, he likes that he one too. It's just wrong. Basic facts. Hey, actually, there's another one here. Cut 23. This was a, this was a, uh, Mary Catherine Ham, my dear friend, saw this clip of Biden and she tweeted, "Help! I'm being misinformationed." Listen to Cut 23. Do you realize the bullet? out of an AR-15 travels five times as rapidly as a bullet shot out of any other gun. No, I didn't realize that because it's wrong. That's not true at all. There are are bullets that move faster, but also what a stupid talking point anyway. Like if you're you're shot at 
by a nine millimeter handgun that you can dodge it matrix style to get out of the way of the bullet. Like it's, it's just a bizarre, it's just factually inaccurate and bizarre. All right. So let's talk about the Mar-a-Lago raid and the FBI investigation and the DOJ documents. And we've now seen the photo of all these classified documents sort of strewn on the floor, illustrating how many of them there were. And the Trump team, I guess the legal team, had attested in some letter, oh, yes, we've handed over everything. There's been a thorough search. Obviously, that could not have been true because there was a lot of classified material that was marked as classified still at Mar-a-Lago. And they recovered it during this uh, this raid a number of weeks ago now. Molly, I've been reading your tweets. I think that we may have some disagreements on this issue broadly, but I'll just tell you where I'm coming from. I have no interest in defending Trump on this. I I have serious doubts that he declassified this stuff because you need to have some record of that, or at least you might need to have some record of that. I think sort of his claims that he did, uh, I'm I'm dubious of them. I think to have your lawyers say that you turned over everything and there was a big search and there was nothing left and then all of this stuff was found, that's a bad look. I think probably this amounts to a violation of the law. I don't want to even try to defend him on it. What I do want to say is if he did break the law here, and again, we need all the information. We're getting more of it seemingly by the day. If he did break the law on the handling of classified information and you know, obstructing in some way efforts to get that material back, if indeed they are moving toward an indictment on that front, as our colleague Annie McCarthy seems to believe they are, and he's a longtime prosecutor, he's reading some of the tea leaves, he wrote a piece about it uh, that I read today, if they're moving toward an indictment, I don't see how you can do that in any way that seems fair or even-handed, given the decision not long ago to not charge Hillary Clinton for the egregious mishandling of classified materials in, I think, clear violation of the law in a way that arguably was worse. So that's sort of where I'm sitting on this, and I wonder how you're feeling about it, and just feel free to react. Yeah, so first off, I actually, we have a piece that will be out at the Federalist, I think, tomorrow from our senior legal correspondent, Margot Cleveland, who will be writing about how actually it might not be true that they broke the law if you accept, even if you accept the FBI's facts, like they, that the lawyers said that they did a thorough search, they turned over everything, but then they did this raid and they found more. Even if you accept those facts, and I think a lot of people have a lot of reason to just not trust the FBI's laying out of uh, claims or the Department of Justice, that that might not have actually even been a violation of law, assuming that they weren't concealing anything, meaning they do a thorough search, they do their best effort. It turns out later that there's more stuff that was found elsewhere. They're not under any obligation to, like, voluntarily turn that over necessarily. It's kind of a complicated legal argument, but um, the point just being it's not, it's not even as cut and dry, even if you accept the entirety of the Department of Justice's claims. But, yeah, to your point, I mean, this is a group of people – that fabricated evidence to secure a uh, warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. They engaged in years of misconduct, knowingly pushing this Russia collusion hoax years after they get there, you know, at the very least, if they ever believed it, years after it had been debunked within the Bureau. They just don't have the they don't have the integrity to pursue this get Trump operation. And they particularly don't after they went out of their way 
to exonerate Hillary Clinton, who wasn't even a president, who didn't have an opportunity to declassify anything, who obstructed justice, who lied or who made false statements uh, when she was interviewed by the FBI, who uh, they went out of their way to let her go. So, like, it's just over. You set the precedent that nobody would prosecute a paperwork issue like this when the case was much worse for the individual. You certainly can't go after Trump um, when you've lost all credibility because of how you've pursued vengeance against him in the previous few years. That's my view. Our, our guest is the new look, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor. Molly, looking forward to seeing you next on TV with these uh, golden locks. We always appreciate your time, and we'll talk again very soon. Take care. Bye, guys. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. Well, just minutes ago at the White House, the press briefing was underway with Corrine Jean-Pierre, the president's spokeswoman. She got a question about school closures in the pandemic and some new reporting out today that we're going to address in the next hour. Just listen to Cut 25. What is the president going to do about it? What is the administration going to do about this severe learning loss? And... Does the administration shoulder any blame for not pushing schools to reopen sooner? So let's step back to where we were uh, not too long ago when this president walked into this administration, uh, how mismanaged uh, the pandemic, the response to the pandemic was, uh, how 47 percent of schools uh, were uh, in, in less than six months uh, our schools went from 46 percent uh, to to open to nearly all of them being open to full time. That was the work of this president. <laughs> Absolutely shameless, pathetic. Absolutely, I don't know what else to say. Pathetic. We'll tackle that and related issues when we come back. A brand new hour of the Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a fresh hour of the guy benson show back here and very pleased to be here with all of you i'm guy benson our website guybensonshow.com podcast is free Every single day on demand. Still to come, Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. He'll be here in studio later on this hour. Reese Davis of ESPN 
coming up in our next hour. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow up today, 146 points at the close, ending at 31,657. But we played you the soundbite right before the break at the top of the hour from today's press briefing at the White House, jaw-dropping shamelessness from the White House. The spokeswoman for President Biden confronted over new reports, new data on massive, catastrophic learning loss among American children during the pandemic. And she had the audacity to pretend like that was due to the mismanagement of the pandemic by the previous administration, the Trump administration. And that really Biden was responsible for the schools opening back up. I'm almost at a loss for how big of a lie that is to describe how deeply mendacious that is. I shouldn't have to explain it because we all just lived through it very recently. Donald Trump, for any number of his faults, very correctly and early on said that the schools needed to reopen and a bunch of resistance leftists all across the country decided to do the opposite because that's how they'd govern, like a bunch of baby children. Oh, if Trump says X, we'll do Y. Even if Trump is right, doesn't matter. They caused the harm. A bunch of selfish, self-interested teachers unions, the patrons of the Democratic Party, pursuing this anti-science, anti-child agenda. They kept schools closed. Look where they were closed. The longest. Public government schools in blue jurisdictions. It's that simple. And it turns out that really, really harmed the kids who were suffering from those policies. While private schools and redder areas opened the schools and kids suffered less. And this administration is going to actually try to pretend that that's somehow Trump's fault and Biden deserves credit for schools finally opening for the current school year in some cases. Are you kidding? What they don't want to talk about is the results that sparked the question. Here's the New York Times story about it. The pandemic erased two decades of progress in math and reading. That's the headline. National test results released Thursday showed in stark terms the pandemic's devastating effects on American school children, with the performance of nine-year-olds in math and reading dropping to the levels from two decades ago. This is apparently the gold standard in standardized testing. It's nationwide. It's very consistent. The decline spanned almost all races and income levels, but were markedly worse for the lowest performing students. Students in the bottom 10th of performers, their aptitude, their performance dropped by 12 points in math, which was quadruple the overall impact on average. In math, writes the Times, black students lost 13 points compared with five uh, points among white students, widening that gap. Research has documented the profound effect school closures had on low-income students and on black and Hispanic students, in part because their schools were more likely to continue remote learning for longer periods of time. Oh, okay, two points here. The equity crowd is silent on this. 
the identity politics race obsessives who see racism and systemic racism around every corner in this rotten racist country. Crickets from them on this because they were on board. These same wokesters were on board with the teachers union and the Democrat cronies to keep those kids locked out of classrooms for no good reason for months on end. And it disproportionately impacted the kids who could afford at least the ones that they pretend to talk about. If I sound pissed off, it's because I am. And I love this sort of uh, whitewash or at least light treading by the New York Times about how this disproportionately impacted low-income students and also black and Hispanic students, quote, in part because their schools are more likely to continue remote learning for longer periods of time. That's true. Why is that, New York Times? Was it because Donald Trump urged them to keep the schools closed and keep those kids in remote learning? No. Who was responsible for that? Who were the ones dragging their feet on opening schools even after... Data set after data set after data set proved that it was safe to do so. It was not the supposedly anti-public education Republicans. It was the ostensibly pro-public education Democrats. Part of it is because trumpets had opened the school, so they couldn't do that. God forbid. Part of it is because the teachers unions didn't want their people to have to go to work. Basically announced to the world, teachers are not essential workers. They should be kept home or else a bunch of people are going to die. And even when it became clear that that was not true, they fought tooth and nail to keep schools closed. And the places they were closed for the longest are the bluest places in the country. That might sound very partisan. It happens to be true in this case. It is beyond galling. To hear this White House and this administration try to pretend like somehow this is Trump's fault and the real hero in the story is Joe Biden. Are you bleeping kidding me? I see Randy Weingarten, perhaps one of the most responsible parties in the entire country for this harm to these students. She's tweeting about how terrible the learning loss is. I know sometimes in politics you say, how dare you, and it's sort of like a joke. This is an actual how dare you moment. How dare you, Randy Weingarten, lament what you have done. You did this. And Democrats did this. And they are hoping that the rest of us are dumb, idiotic morons with the memories of a gnat. Don't believe them. They are lying. Make them pay for it. There's an election coming. And you know what? I have some more to say about this relatedly on the election front. We'll get to that right after this. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, back here on the Guy Benson Show. While I was gone, I know that you guys have played this clip maybe once or twice. The Florida primaries were last Tuesday with Governor DeSantis and Senator Rubio unopposed on the Republican side. And then some interesting matchups on the Democratic primary, especially on the governor's race. The battle to take on DeSantis in November. Nikki Freed was one of the candidates. Charlie Crist was the other. 
And I know one poll toward the end had Nikki Freed winning. She got blown out by like 20 points. So another Florida polling failure in the Democratic primary, at least. Charlie Crist has become the standard bearer of the Democratic Party. He wants his old job back. And this ties into what we were just talking about in the last segment. Let me just pause for a moment and remind you about Charlie Crist, that he is a soulless politician who seeks power for the sake of power. He believes absolutely nothing. And I say that with confidence, even though it sounds a little harsh, because of his track record. He was elected as the Republican governor of Florida in 2006. He ran as a conservative Reagan Republican in 06. Then in 2010, he was running for United States Senate in the primary. He thought that the field would clear for him as the governor. But Marco Rubio, then the Florida Speaker of the House, had other ideas, challenged him and beat him in part of sort of the Tea Party wave in 2010. Charlie Crist was so upset, so bitter that he lost a Republican primary that this so-called Reagan conservative then became an independent to run as a sore loser in the general election against Rubio and against the Democrat. Now, Rubio wiped the floor with both of them. Rubio got almost 50 percent of the vote when they split the remainder. So it wasn't close. So Charlie Crist went from a Republican to a sore loser independent, failed again. And then he decided, OK, how do I attain power now? So he switched to his third political party in the span of just a couple of years over to the Democrats, where he just instantly started to espouse and vote for things and support things that he had spent the rest of his previous political career, at least pretending to oppose. He's been a Democrat ever since. He's run for certain things and failed. He did get himself elected to a House seat, a congressional seat in Florida, which I believe was getting gerrymandered and redistricted away. So he decided, okay, time to run for statewide office again. I want to be governor again, this time of the opposite party. And as a member of Congress, by the way, he was out there voting by proxy. He was never showing up for the job, attacking Ron DeSantis, by the way, for wanting to run for president, being like, oh, he's an absentee governor because he really wants to be president. DeSantis has been a hardcore engaged governor in Florida. He's been in the state almost all the time. Charlie Crist is not doing his actual job. He's like literally phoning in his votes under this Pelosi scheme of proxy voting. And voting almost without fail, like roughly 100 percent of the time with the Biden Pelosi agenda. If Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi wanted it, Charlie Crist, Mr. Former Reagan Republican governor, was a lockstep vote for the Democratic agenda. And all the things that he's attacking DeSantis for on all these issues, there are press releases and statements of Charlie Crist from the past basically saying exactly the opposite. I think that the DeSantis campaign is looking forward to running against Charlie Crest. It's pretty easy, given the paper trail. And just the phoniness of this man, who stands for nothing. He stands for himself, and you don't really get a sense that he even believes anything that he's saying. So he becomes the nominee. So congratulations, Florida Democrats. That's your choice. And within hours, he's out there attacking most Floridians. Cut 22. I know we played it in my absence, but just a refresher. Let's listen. Those who support the governor should stay with him and vote for him. And I don't want your vote. If you have that hate in your heart, keep it there. 
I want the vote of the people of Florida who care about our state. Good Democrats, good independents, good Republicans. Unify with this ticket. Yeah, that's a very unifying message. You hateful bigots, get the hell out. I don't want your vote. Unify with me. I don't want your vote. That is a very rare thing to hear a politician say ever. It's usually if it happens in the context of someone really toxic trying to endorse you and you want to disavow or distance yourself. But to say that about all of the voters, every DeSantis voter or supporter, I don't want your vote. It's like, okay, (laughs) you're not going to get it. He is treating more than half of the state as deplorable bigots whose votes he rejects. He doesn't even want them to consider voting for him. Governor DeSantis has an approval rating in the mid to high 50s in that state. A large majority of the state is happy with the performance of Ron DeSantis. Hundreds of thousands of people have moved to the state of Florida because of the results in that state. And here's Charlie Crist angrily saying he does not want any of those people to even think about voting for him. I think that's probably music to the ears of the DeSantis campaign. Then on top of all of it, it seemed like that was a very bad mistake for a politician to make. You'd think a guy who is just a career politician, this is his whole life, might have more sense than to say something like that. But at least you could say that's off the cuff. What's not off the cuff was another big decision that he made within hours or days of winning the nomination, which was selecting his running mate. This was a premeditated, you would think, carefully considered choice. And his choice was Carla Hernandez Matz, who was literally a union boss, a teacher's union boss down in Miami. Now, the virtual paper trail on her is extraordinary. The things that she's tweeted, the quasi-lamentation when Castro died, how's that going to play in Florida? My God. Some totally unhinged and deranged things that she has put out and amplified on social media. She is like a pinkish red loon. And what I think she should be most remembered for is her virulent demagogic attempts to prevent the reopening of schools in Florida when Governor DeSantis made the right call based on the data based on the science, to open schools for the 2020-2021 school year. This woman, Ms. Hernandez-Matz, was so opposed to that, she organized rallies to keep schools closed, including hiring a hearse from a funeral home with Ron DeSantis's picture on it to drive around through the streets like kids are going to die. Now, we knew that that was a lie. Now, we knew that that was a lie. We knew what the data was showing across the country and over in Europe and around the world on young kids and schools. And yet this woman, in her position as the leader of a teacher's union, was doing her damnedest to hurt the children of South Florida and keep them locked out of classrooms in totally failed virtual learning. In spite of the actual science, as this self-interested, selfish myopic agenda was all she cared about. And given what she has done and said publicly on a whole host of issues, I truly cannot believe that Charlie Crist picked her as his lieutenant governor running mate on this ticket, particularly because her addition to the ticket 
allows the DeSantis campaign to revisit in a major way the whole issue of COVID, lockdowns, mandates, and closed schools. That is a contrast that absolutely benefits the incumbent. And the challenger has made the decision to accentuate the issue, an issue that DeSantis is itching to talk about as much as possible. And Chris is like, yes, let's make that as easy as possible. Let's put a teacher's union boss who wanted the schools closed on the ticket and see how that goes. This is manna from heaven for Ron DeSantis and his team. This is an issue that they want to focus on. It's a winning issue for them. I think it helps them draw a very clear contrast, one that will go, I think, quite well for them down in Florida. And it also, I think, reminds people not in Florida, all across the country, the issue of education and what happened to our kids over the last couple of years, as we were just talking about last segment, it is an active issue politically, not just in Florida, but around the country. The people who inflicted so much harm have had no accountability, and on a major statewide ticket in a crucial state, one of the people fighting for that harm has been rewarded by the Democratic Party. Education was a huge issue in 2021 in Virginia and New Jersey. It must remain one in 2022. And thanks to the Christ campaign, here's a really good news hook to remind us of how critical and relevant the issue remains right now. And on that note, we will take a break. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this with U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are halfway through today's show. Here on the Guy Benson Show, glad to be back in the chair after some time off. And I'm here in our Tony Snow studios in Washington, D.C. at the D.C. Bureau of Fox News. I'm very pleased to welcome in studio U.S. Senator Dr. Bill Cassidy. He's the senior senator from Louisiana, and he is a medical doctor, first elected to the Senate in 2014, reelected in the last cycle. And, Senator, it's great to see you here. Hey, Guy, and you, you didn't mention that I'm a huge LSU football fan. So, you know, since you're into football, let's just also stress that. Go Tigers. There you go. And we have Reese Davis of ESPN coming up on the show next hour. Oh, so good for you. We'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about the SEC just a little bit would be my guess. I feel like I'm the warm-up band for the Who. You know, if Reese is going to be on next <laughs> and I'm here now, everybody get the guy out of the way. Let's get to Reese. <laughs> well, well, let's get to some serious topics here before we move on to sports and some lighter stuff in the final hour. I want to start with some news that broke last week. My last show before I took off for some vacation was last Tuesday when the news started to percolate and emerge that President Biden was going to move forward with this scheme on student loan so-called forgiveness. And I know I've seen some polling showing that when you ask the question a certain way, it's a relatively popular program with the American people. You ask it a different way and even mention anything about cost or inflation or taxes or fairness. The numbers turn very south very quickly There's the political component to it. There's the fairness component to it. There's the policy component to it. There's the legality component to it. For me, it's a lose, 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 at least from my perspective. And it seems really to that last point lawless on top of everything else. What do you make of it? And what can the U.S. Senate or Republicans who are currently out of power do to try to combat something that I think is just so flagrantly bad and wrong on so many levels? Two things. Of all those things you mentioned, one thing you didn't mention was the human component. 
When this policy came out, my phone just lit up with text messages. You know, I worked two jobs. I skipped vacation. I didn't buy a new car to pay back my student loans. Now, why did I do that? And that was message after message. In fairness, there was one person who came to me, and she said she had borrowed $17,000. She had um, paid back 60000 but the interest rate was such that she was now up to 200000 in debt. I don't know the details if they're correct, but she made a bad loan. She got something with incredible high uh, interest rates. And so, so what, what, what Biden did was create a sense of unfairness for the people who sacrificed, who sacrificed to pay back. What he didn't do is fix the issue of someone who borrowed 17000 has paid back sixty, and now, no, now owes even more. Fix that problem. Don't just erase it. Because the next generation will have the same problem. Right, that's right. And I think you're calling it the human component, which is, I think, a good way of framing it. The way I was talking about it was the fairness issue. It's just so unfair for anyone who's done the right thing, right, who sacrificed on paying back loans, who sacrificed going maybe to a school that wasn't their dream school because they couldn't afford it, so they didn't have to take out big loans. Then there's the majority of Americans. I'd imagine the majority of Louisianans who didn't go to college. And now you've got them being asked to foot the bill – for like post-grad degrees, for people with much higher earning ceilings, it just seems like a total giveaway that's regressive from working class and middle class people to wealthier people. I mean, I know that there's a, a sliver of the population that will benefit from this, but I think there's an awful lot of people out there that could be persuaded or may not even need to be persuaded that this is a very raw deal for them before we even get to the issue that it's inflationary, right? The cost of college and graduate degrees has been going up and up and up like crazy now for many years. This only accelerates that. It doesn't fix it at all. So I just made a sweep through North Louisiana. When I'm back in state, I just travel the state. So I just went through North Louisiana. And you meet with some folks who, uh, man, they're happy to have a job, which is paying them $120,000 a year. And this is after some seniority, and they've gotten some extra skills. They're working hard. They love it. Others are happy to have a job paying 80000 or 50000 They didn't go to college, but they're great people, and they've gone to some technical college, and now they have this degree. And then they read, well, I didn't go to school. But here's a family that could be making $250,000 a year, five to twice as much as I'm earning, and they're getting their debt wiped clean. And oh, by the way, it's reported that this will assign every taxpayer $2,000 more in national debt to pay back on behalf of the families that went to college and decided not to pay back their loans. Going back to fairness and even a bitterness that this is just tilted towards one group. By the way, people notice that it is right before midterms Mm -hmm. and that some provisions run out the month after the elections, and there's a cynicism about what Biden is doing that makes it worse. And then you're piling all of this on top of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which if you run the numbers a certain way, you can make the case that maybe it would reduce deficits down the line, I think that was fanciful and very unlikely. That was the case that I made here. And then lo and behold, like days later, they come out with this, which would more than wipe out those supposed deficit savings. It is definitionally inflationary. And the Democrats all voted for that thing. Now they're sort of hemming and hawing a little bit about this. It just seems like they are trying to shovel as much money out the door as possible trying to save themselves in an election year. That's how I think it just looks 
from a casual observer's perspective. It is using the federal treasury to try and buy off the American public just before a midterm election in which the Democratic Party was expected to lose big. Now, theoretically, the president's supposed to be out there hitting for all Americans, and the president's supposed to be doing what is right policy. Um, And now we feel as if he's willing to sacrifice our longer-term economy for that shorter-term political gain. By the way, if you don't like it, vote Republican in the midterms. Yeah, it's like if you don't like the fact that you did the right thing or you sacrificed or you didn't go to college and now your taxes are being used or if this survives judicial scrutiny will be used to bail out partially at least lawyers and doctors and that sort of thing. If you if you like that, then vote for the Democrats. If you don't like that, there's another option. And then I think on top of that, going back to the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the doubling of the IRS, where they also try to sort of tell this story that if you're a working class family or a middle class family, don't you worry about all those tens of thousands of new agents. Don't you worry about the agency doubling in size. They're not coming after you. But when they have an opportunity, the Democrats, to actually vote on that, to give that teeth, all the Republicans voted yes, all the Democrats voted no. I think you combine sort of some of these factors It ought to be pretty toxic for these Democrats politically, at least how I read it. It should be, but we should not take it for granted. A president is powerful, and the president, as we can see, can use the public purse in the short term to do a lot of things. So if you're upset about the border, if you're upset about crime, if you're upset about inflation, if things have been tough for your family, my gosh, you got to vote. you got to get other people to vote, and you need to vote Republican. Senator Cassidy, you have a new bill out, the Halt Fentanyl Act. I want to talk about that in a second, but first, to set it up, here is Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman. She was challenged yesterday by our colleague here, Peter Ducey, about fentanyl, about the border. Here's part of that exchange in Cut 12. But 300 overdoses a day now. We know how the fentanyl is coming into the country. It's coming right across the southern border. The DEA administrator says so. So... When is the president going to do something? So I will say that uh, you have seen a 200 percent increase of fentanyl seizures, which means that uh, we are we are doing the job of catching drug traffickers. Seizures are going down uh, at a rate not seen in a century. And part of that is being driven by drug overdoses. So what is the president going to do? And we we agree. We agree. We see those same numbers as well. But the fact that we are, uh, you know, we are securing the border. We are securing the border. Fantasy. My children used to have opposite day. Whatever somebody said, it was actually opposite. We're securing the border. Oh, yeah, right. Inflation Reduction Act. Nope, it increases inflation. It's like this administration has one big, long opposite day. When we have increasing numbers of Americans dying from overdose, you're not securing the border. You may say that you're capturing more. Probably you're capturing a bigger amount of a higher amount coming in. That's right. And so and I say that in, in central Louisiana, sheriff just told me he confiscated 10 pounds of fentanyl. That's enough to kill everybody in, in central Louisiana. Now, this was just like last, last couple of weeks or a month. He didn't tell me exactly when, but point being recently. So, so those drugs are coming across in record amounts, and we have record amounts of Americans dying from fentanyl overdose. And it's part and parcel of what is effectively an open border. If they're securing the border and we had 200,000 people cross in one month this past summer, that's not securing the border. That's waving, everybody, waving at everybody when they walk on by. And part of the issue, and we've – made this point ad nauseum here about the border crisis, when you have so many of our personnel 
just processing illegal immigrants who want to get caught so they can mark a few things down on a piece of paper, then be released into the country, in some cases bust or flown to the city of their choice. You've got those agents working as kind of you know clerical workers, and they are not actually minding the store. They're not actually on the wall, so to speak, trying to keep dangerous drugs and people out of the country. Far fewer of them are able to do that. That's part of the huge problem here. I think another issue, Senator, is the impact that fentanyl is having on communities and families. A lot of people sort of hear the word fentanyl. Like, I think that's coming from China. We know it's deadly. But if you're not doing fentanyl or whatever, then maybe you're okay. It's not really that simple, right, because other drugs are being laced with this stuff. You've got people unbeknownst to them ingesting fentanyl and and dying, and it's wreaking this trail of havoc and misery across the country in a way that is devastating when you talk to some of the people impacted by it. Two times as many people die a year from overdose as died in 10 years in Vietnam, and yet Vietnam scarred our national psyche. If we owe it to our fellow Americans to, t- to attempt to address this, uh, and by the way, it is coming from China through Mexico across the border. There are ways to interrupt it. You mentioned earlier my Hot Fentanyl Act. It just gives law enforcement more tools. We also need to interrupt the financing. We're working on that as well. There's billions being moved out of our country that then go back to Mexico, that then go to China to keep this chain going. We need to interrupt that financing. There's a lot more we can do to make it better for fellow Americans. Senator Cassidy, in your intro, I mentioned that you're a medical doctor, and that's a huge part of your past. You've done a lot of work with lower-income patients. I want to ask you, now that we're coming out of the pandemic, Dr. Fauci announcing that he will be retiring soon in the next couple of months, just your thoughts on his legacy and then perhaps relatedly the stories out today that we mentioned earlier here on the show about the quantification, at least a piece of it, of the learning loss among students who were locked out of schools, especially in blue cities and blue states for so long. A lot of people were warning this is a disaster. It is anti-science. It doesn't follow the data. It happened anyway. And now some folks are trying to pretend like they're surprised that their own policies are wreaking all of this harm on so many kids in this country. I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg on what those closures really did. Several things about that. Fauci's legacy will be complicated. Uh, Fauci was at the front line of helping to find a diagnosis for AIDS and cures for AIDS. And since I was in my residency when that came out, and and, and young men in their 20s and 30s were dying all over the place, uh, I, I will always praise Fauci for his and others' ability to find cures for that disease. Period. End of story. Clearly, as regards the COVID crisis, it's a mixed bag. Things were said that, in retrospect, weren't true, and other things were said that were harmful. That, but having said that, I will blame the politicians. It shouldn't be a doctor unless the doctor happens to be an elected official who makes the final call. It is the politician who's supposed to balance the relative risk. Okay, the doctor is telling me this, but I can just know from common sense, if some lower-income kid whose mother has to work is at home by himself, he's not going to learn. That's common sense 101. I'm actually going to blame those elected officials in those blue cities and states elsewhere for shutting things down when common sense told you it was going to be very harmful. You were first elected to the Senate in a big Republican wave year, 2014. The GOP netted nine Senate seats that cycle, which was wild. Yours was a very closely watched race against Mary Landrieu. You won that one. Eight new Republican colleagues of yours entered the Senate, you know, net that year. Then you were reelected 
two years ago in 2020, which was much more of a mixed bag where President Biden won the election. Republicans did not lose with coattails for President Biden. It was sort of, you know, a split verdict in some ways by the American people, even though what happened in Georgia gave full control over to the Democrats in early 2021. Having now gone through those two electoral environments in your first two races, what's your overall thought on 2022? How are you sizing up November's election? Where is the energy of the voter? It is going to be up to that person listening right now who's frustrated with inflation, frustrated with the border, frustrated with the crime. If he or she gets out and votes and gets their neighbors to vote as long as they're voting Republican, then we will win. And if not, if the energies on the other side will fight to a draw or lose, it is it is full court press. If you're frustrated with the things Guy and I are frustrated with, get out, vote, get others to vote. Do you think, last question, it is helpful for the Republican Party that so much of our discourse right now is once again surrounding the former president, Mar-a-Lago and all this stuff. I'm not saying it's not a real news story. Just it it feels to me like. The more he is front and center, the more the Democrats can at least try to make the argument, oh, this is an election that's about a choice between the two parties as opposed to a referendum on what the Democrats have done for the last two years in full control of Washington. I think there's evidence that what you just said is true, losing that Republican seat in upstate New York and then losing that seat in Alaska. Uh, when our when, when our when our guys and gals get get distracted um, and the other side gets energized, we lose elections. We need to keep our eye on the ball. Uh, we need to get out, work for electing good Republicans, and the more we're paying attention to other issues like Mar-a-Lago, I think the less effective we are. U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy, medical doctor of Louisiana, here on The Guy Benson Show in studio in Washington, D.C. It's great to see you, Senator. Thanks, Thanks for Guy. coming in. Great to be with you, man. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We were just chatting about some of the failures of progressive governance with Senator Cassidy. And I would have to say that the poster child, really the Frankenstein's monster of progressive policy at the state level is, of course, California. It's just a gruesome Petri dish of a lot of terrible ideas. And on that note, I'd like to give you sort of like a shot chaser example of what I'm talking about. And these stories, these news accounts were six days apart. Ready? Here's the shot. California to ban the sale of new gasoline-fueled cars. The decision to take effect by 2035 will speed a wider transition to electric vehicles because many other states follow California's standards, which, by the way, I do not recommend. But that was last week. California saying, look how green we are. Look how future-minded we are. We're going to stop selling gasoline-powered cars in this state. you got to move to electrical vehicles. Okay, that's the shot. The chaser, six days later, California power grid officials warn of blackouts and urge residents to conserve energy. Quote, set thermostats to 78 degrees or higher, gross, avoid using large appliances and charging electric vehicles and turn off unnecessary lights. So they're saying, look at us. We're blazing the trail. We're getting rid of fossil fuels and gas-powered cars. Get those electric vehicles. That's the future. A few days later, please do not charge your electric vehicles because of rolling blackouts due to our failing power grid. Slow clap for the state of California. Bang-up job as usual. 
And I continue to dream about a potential 2024 election where we might have a referendum nationally between the California model and, oh, I don't know, the Florida model, maybe. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Reese Davis of ESPN College Game Day on college football and beyond. That's next. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. My first day back from a little vacation. Delighted to be here. Lots of stories to tell about the last week or so. We'll get to some of that coming up in the home stretch later this hour. Our website remains the same as always, GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free of charge every day, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. You can also follow us here on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious and refreshing as we're finishing up the summer. No pun intended. You can learn more about that delicious beverage. Find out where it's sold near you or order online all at thelongdrink.com. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Joining us once again is ESPN's Reese Davis. He's beginning his eighth season as the anchor of the college pregame show, College Game Day, of which I am a regular viewer. And, Reese, it's great to have you back. Thank you for having me, Guy. Did did I see, did you go to Dublin to watch your beloved Wildcats uh, throw a wrench into Scott Frost's plans once again? Oh, I sure did, Reese. I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, (laughs) I wanted to, shockingly, I wanted to start the interview with that. I have to tell you, I was expecting to go over there, see Ireland, have a good time. It really felt like one of the cooler bowl game experiences that I've ever gone to. But based on last season, my expectations for the actual competition were low. I was in Lincoln last year when we lost by, I think, 50 it was brutal. The team was 3-9. and nine. Nebraska was supposed to be good. Some people picking them to win the West this year. They got a lot of talent on the roster. But again, Scott Frost sort of on the hot seat. And it was like night and day. It's one of these even years, even-numbered years for the Wildcats where they win the Big Ten West in 2018 and 2020, dead last in 19 and 21. Maybe we're seeing this Fitzgerald bounce again what do you make of what the cats did and what it means for nebraska and scott frost because i think a lot of people including the prognosticators were including myself i'll be totally honest were caught off guard by how well the cats played i was surprised at how well they played offensively i mean they put up well over 500 yards uh not that nebraska some defensive juggernaut but northwestern had a lot of trouble on offense last year i didn't see (laughs) yes that type of leap coming um But I do think the one thing that you might uh, look at by the end of the season, you might think a three-point loss to Northwestern is no big deal. But because of the offseason that Nebraska had, uh, the restructuring of Scott Frost's contract, um, all of that sort of played into hands. And the fact that they made catastrophic errors again. And there were almost times, and I don't know how you felt about this as a Northwestern fan, and I have 
just the utmost respect for Pat Fitzgerald. He's a tremendous coach. But there were times, a couple of the third down calls leading into fourth down, that I thought he played it really too conservatively, way too close to the vest, settling for field goals. But in retrospect, it was almost as if he said, I know we're good, and I'm going to, I'm not going to make the error. I'm going to wait until they do something to, to help us out. And if that was the case, then, uh, then he forecasted well, because that's what Nebraska did. But with those mistakes in mind, Northwestern outplayed them. They gained 500 yards. They bullied them on the line of scrimmage. And that's right. I think it bodes well in a wide open uh, Big Ten West that Northwestern could well uh, be a factor in it uh, for, for the rest of the season. Yeah, or at least be respectable, unlike last year, which was sort of a total debacle. But, yeah, the offense was a huge, pleasant surprise. The offensive line played extremely well. The quarterback looked night and day from last year, Ryan Holinsky, and I'd love to see all of that continue. The defense, I'd like to see some tightening up. There were some uh, big plays allowed and a few big plays narrowly averted. And so, look, it's it's week one, and everyone has a week zero in this case, right? Week one's coming up technically a lot of kinks to work out on both sides of the football, but I know the horde of red that showed up in Dublin was expecting to roll over Northwestern and then sort of celebrate and party overseas, and uh, they were not expecting what happened. And the, I'd say, 8,000 or so Northwestern fans who showed up had just a fantastic time. I will not forget that for the rest of my life, certainly. What an awesome trip, and I'm just now regaining my voice, Reese. And I also have to say, and I'll talk about this probably tomorrow, did you see or read about the beer situation at the stadium? Uh, I did. I understand that the the server went down. At first they said it was a whole internet, but just something about their paying vendor, and so they just gave it away. That's did, right. Did you Everything that guy? Well, well, uh, Reese, just, just to be clear <laughs> – here on the radio, I always drink responsibly. Uh, however, uh, when they're like, hey, the beer is free, and it was free for three quarters, by the way, with the payment system down, I think I was sitting at one point saying, wow, our fans are uncharacteristically loud. I said, oh, you know what? Maybe it's all the free beer. And actually, something that happened, you'll appreciate this, and we'll move on from Northwestern. Steve Schnur, a name that might ring a bell, mm-hmm. our yep. Rose Bowl quarterback, 1995, the, the real glory days, in recent memory, he was sitting one row in front of me. And at one point he was walking down the aisle to his seats and he accidentally kicked over my beer. And I fake angrily said, you've got to go buy me a new one because it's just like all, it was all completely free. So I did partake. It was extremely fun, a pleasant surprise. Now I'm just hoping that Northwestern can avoid their annual seeming loss to Duke uh, next week. They got the bye week this week. Reese, I do want to ask you, About the game in Ireland, setting aside Northwestern, setting aside Nebraska, this was one of these showcase games for the sport. And there were, I would say, combined maybe twenty-five to 30,000 partisan fans wearing purple, wearing red. But there were 15,000, 20,000 fans just there wearing NFL jerseys, wanting to see American football. What do you think the importance is of bringing the game to places where they rarely see the sport. What does that do for the game? I do. I think it helps it grow it internationally. And we've seen the NFL go over there and Ireland has been particularly committed to bringing a college football game um, to its country. The pandemic year, notwithstanding, we were actually in fact supposed to go the year Notre Dame and Navy were scheduled to play over there and do college game day from Dublin. But um, I think it's important to make it an international game. You've seen more players come overseas uh, from Europe 
and make their way in college football. Central Michigan, for instance, had a couple of offensive linemen who sort of learned the game by watching it online and ended up with scholarships and ended up getting drafted in the NFL draft last year. You know, they found their way there. So I think that you you find a new pool of players, you grow the popularity of the sport, and at a time when um, the National Football Foundation, for instance, is trying to emphasize the positive aspect of football, and there are parents in some quarters who are hesitant to let their kids play, I think mm-hmm. it's important to to grow the sport, showcase the positive nature of it, and while still doing it as safely as possible. And I think international games are a great way to do it. And it also brings a lot of attention to the start of the season. Uh, there have been people who have suggested that as the playoff expands, which it inevitably will at some point in a not-too-distant future, whether it be at the end of this contract or before that, there's been talk that maybe an idea for the reinvention of uh, the way the postseason is handled to move bowl games to the beginning of the season. And when you have showcase trips, um, you know, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities for many people to go to Dublin and see their team play or to go someplace like that, then maybe that's another aspect of looking into ways to kick off the season with a bang and grow the popularity of the sport um, outside of the traditional regions where it's already wildly popular in the Southeast and in the Midwest. Sure. I mean, I like the idea of the bowl season being a reward for playing well, or at least relatively well, Mm -hmm. over the course of the season. But the showcase point is a good one. And case in point, the game on Saturday on Fox had a very good number, almost four and a half million people watching that game uh, just after noon Eastern time. And I strongly recommend, Reese, if you guys ever get the chance to do it, to host game day out in Ireland, do it. You can maybe have an extra beer or two at the pub, actually, the night before because you can get up at a more civilized hour because of the time (laughs) difference. So I think it'd be a win-win for you guys for sure. Another bigger picture question about college football Obviously, you're sort of ear to the ground on this stuff much more than I am, but reports bubbling up that now the University of Washington and the Pac-12, Oregon, having perhaps you know closed-door conversations with the Big Ten Conference, which has already poached UCLA and USC starting uh, a couple seasons from now, discussions about Notre Dame in that mix. You have to imagine that down south, the ACC is looking warily over at their neighbors in the SEC when it comes to schools like Florida State or Clemson, it really feels like this shifting reality, the shifting sands beneath our feet as college football fans are nowhere near settled yet. What do you think comes next here? It's a hard question, but I I agree with you. The the realignment phase is not over. The question I was speaking with an administrator just a few days ago, and he says the question is, do you continue during this period of disruption and go ahead and try to get it done now, or do you let things settle a bit and then do it again? And, you know, who knows the time frame, 12 months, 18 months or, or sooner. It's going to happen. The two schools you mentioned that are currently in the Pac-12 uh, – I don't think it's much of a secret, even though some have tried to keep it there, that they covet going with USC and UCLA into the Big Ten. The question is, how much sense does it make for the current Big Ten members and for USC and UCLA, who are probably not real eager to share that little slice of the economic pie as well as the prestige that they have from a recruiting standpoint of playing in the Big Ten, not eager to share it with Washington and Oregon, Oregon particularly has been effective in coming into South Car- uh, Southern California, pardon me, and recruiting. So 
it all goes back to that. How much financial sense does it make? The ACC question, not to get too far in the weeds, is a difficult one because all of the schools currently in the ACC have a grant of rights, which means no matter what conference they're in, all of their broadcast rights will go to the ACC until 2036, I believe. Hmm. So absent some type of uh, loophole in there that would allow them to exit or something you know, something truly seismic as it pertains to the SEC uh, or the ACC going to the SEC. I think that's a little bit more of a difficult proposition than, say, Washington or Oregon or maybe even some of the Big 12 schools uh, moving on, you know, before the end of those contracts. I think, you know, you mentioned some schools, a couple I think that would be really, really attractive to the SEC and maybe even to the Big 10 for that matter would be North Carolina and Virginia. But both of them have the grant of rights issue uh, with, uh, with the ACC right now. All right, Reese Davis, let's toggle to the here and now week one of the season underway after week zero and some really juicy big-time matchups right out of the gate. Just want to get your take on a couple of them. There's ranked Cincinnati at ranked Arkansas, uh, then ranked Utah, top 10 Utah at Florida, those are a couple home games for SEC schools. Thoughts there? Uh, first of all, if you like demolition derbies and hard-nosed <laughs> physical football, then Cincinnati and Arkansas, that's the game for you. Cincinnati has sort of an unprecedented drain of talent for them and to still return and be ranked again. Um, Arkansas has a lot of guys back. Both of them on different levels had breakthrough seasons. I favor Arkansas in that game because they're more proven at quarterback. Cincinnati has the interesting story of their starting quarterback is Ben Bryant. Ben Bryant started his career at Cincinnati, left and went to Eastern Michigan, was the starter there for a while, and now has transferred back and we believe has won the job. So he, But I think there's a little more stability at quarterback for Arkansas. They did have a couple of guys hit the transfer portal on their defense, which could be problematic. Utah-Florida game is probably one I'm as excited for as any. I believe Utah has the capability, and I have, in fact, predicted that they will make the playoff. Florida, great name brand, great environment, wildly talented quarterback and Anthony Richardson. But I do believe that they're basically an average to above average SEC team, and if above average, only slightly so. Utah should win that game. And if Utah is a playoff contender, they will win that game. They don't have to blow them out. But I think they should and probably will go in, and you'll be convinced by the end of the evening that's the that's the significantly superior team. Those are a couple of games that you know could really impact the way people think about the SEC. You say Oregon goes in and gives Georgia a scare or pulls the upset. Utah wins at Florida, and then if Cincinnati somehow wins, then uh, then all who love to watch the SEC suffer would be getting their wish. Uh, that would be me. So we'll think, you know, we'll cross our fingers here. Uh, and you're right that number seven Utah squad, the Utes are very good. I'm not sure I would put them in the playoff, but that's a bold pick on your part. It could blow up on the launch pad in week one. We'll see. This is what's so exciting about early season football. You mentioned the defending champions, the Georgia Bulldogs. They're taking on number 11, Oregon, which we talked about in the other context a moment ago. That game is in Atlanta that Saturday. And then finally, the big one, primetime game, number two, Ohio State, the Buckeyes hosting Notre Dame at number five in Columbus, the game day game for you guys at ESPN. That's a big one. And it's hard for me to root for the Buckeyes, but I'll be pulling for the scarlet and the gray against Notre Dame because, you know, I have to as a Big Ten fan, certainly. Who do you think wins that one? 
I think Ohio State. Um, you know, they're, Notre Dame's not coached by Marcus Freeman, who played at Ohio State. He's doing a great job on the recruiting trail, but I just think the Buckeyes have way too much firepower for them. Uh, Notre Dame starting Tyler Buckner, quarterback, who's a talented guy, but he's got more career rushing yards than passing yards. And no matter how good your defense is, you're going to have to put up points to keep up with Ohio State this year. They've got uh, high-level, big-time future draft picks right at the very top of the first round, quarterback, receiver, running back, uh, all-American offensive linemen. This is an offensive juggernaut. The question about Ohio State, again, will be defense, but I'm not sure Notre Dame has enough to exploit that. I think they'll play them tough for a while, and the Buckeyes will sort of pull away in the second half. Reese Davis is the host of ESPN's College Game Day in his eighth season in that capacity. And, Reese, I'll have an opportunity to watch this weekend. I'm really looking forward to that and all season long on ESPN. Always enjoy the work that you do there along with the whole team and always very grateful that you make some time for us here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Feeling is mutual. Enjoy the season. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Reese. It's Reese Davis on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Continuing here on the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. And producer Christine, would you like me to make you happy right now? I sure would. I'm happy to do this because, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, as I do every day when I give the date, it is now officially September. And even though we are still pre-Labor Day, it at least is a fall month that has arrived. And therefore, we can have our first conversation on this show this year about pumpkin spice fill-in-the-blank. I've taken a hard line on this through the years. We've argued about it back and forth. And you try to bring up the conversation in July, in August. We managed, I think, to completely stiff-arm the topic all summer long. It's now September, and I hereby grant you the Guy Benson Show's official permission to enjoy pumpkin spice season, even though it's still too early, at least it's September. You're welcome. Are you happy? I feel like I want to do the small clap right now, but I must tell you something briefly. I tricked your guest host, and we did talk a lot about pumpkin while you were gone. Is that actually true? Why did she do that? A little bit, yes. Oh, so that's what happened. I'm across an ocean, and that's when she sneaks it in. Well, that was premature, but it's now September, and you have permission. So I don't know if that means anything at all, but I do have to take a break, and we will take it together. Be right back on the happy hour. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today on the Guy Benson Show, we caught up with our friend and colleague, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist and a Fox News contributor, talking about some of the events of the day, the Mar-a-Lago saga that continues, President Biden's speech that he's giving tonight about democracy or whatever. Here's part of what Molly Hemingway had to say about all of that and beyond. Your thoughts in advance of what we're going to hear from Biden tonight. You know, I think they have very bad options in the Democrat Party right now. They control everything in Washington, D.C., the presidency, both chambers, the policies that have been put forth with almost no opposition within the Democrat Party are not very popular, whether that's foreign or domestic policy, um, 
you know, border issues, uh, the economy, inflation, energy policy, they're not popular. And so when you can't run on your own agenda, it does make sense that you might really move to being negative about your opponent. But I think the reason why it's not a great idea for Joe Biden in particular is that his entire candidacy and campaign and inaugural speech were all about how he would be this hopeful unifier, a competent unifier. He's already <laughs> not done the competent part, but now he's not being a unifier. I mean, he's really not being a unifier, obviously. Oh, and he hasn't for quite some time, right? He was talking right. about George Wallace and, you know, uh, all the segregationists. So Jefferson Davis, I believe, made an appearance in that speech about so-called voting rights. Now this is, you know, a speech about democracy. And here's the thing, Molly, I don't think that there are, you know, no points that can be made about the current constellation of the Republican Party that they're like, a you know, beyond reproach. On, on certain issues related to elections or anything like that, I also find it absolutely and utterly pointless to listen to one word that this man has to say on the subject either. Someone who has you know played along with election trutherism when it comes to Stacey Abrams in Georgia, for example, someone who just went fully lawless doing something that the White House admitted for a while at least, would be unlawful with the student loans thing. I mean, if we want to sort of go into a battle of, you know, whataboutism finger-pointing, I feel like, let me put this as kindly as I can, this is a flawed messenger on multiple levels for the Democratic Party on this subject. I think a lot of people would love to have someone talk about things that matter to the American people, to tone down the rhetoric. I mean, I didn't love... Biden's inaugural speech, but the speech was all about toning things down and how he would be, he was promising and would commit to that toning down. As you note, he has a track record of uh, bad rhetoric. You know, he he claimed that Mitt Romney was going to put black people back in chains. I mean, he doesn't, he has a long track record of kind of being a jerk, but he also has a long track record of not being a jerk. And he could have risen to that higher thing. And I think so many people voted for him thinking it would be an escape from mean rhetoric and to instead do much meaner rhetoric, call every single person who didn't vote for him a Nazi, essentially. That's that's just really the opposite direction from where he should be going. But yeah, and, really and he said he said in his in his victory speech, right, that Saturday after the after the election in November, he gave his victory speech in Delaware and everyone was in their cars honking at him, remember that? And he said that his mandate from the American people was to bring down the temperature, to work together, to not treat the opposition as enemies and all of that. And then, you know, within months he was screaming about how Republicans are Bull Connor because they want photo ID for voting. That's just a taste. My full conversation with Molly Hemingway, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also our free podcast, here every day on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. It's totally free, or FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, no charge as always. When we come back the home stretch, as I've mentioned a few times today, I'm just back from vacation. We almost didn't make it back in time. There was some serious airport drama that I have to share. Some of those details straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Thursday edition. It feels like a Monday to me because I'm just back, but it's already Thursday. Tomorrow's Friday. 
I will be on the big show Saturday and Sunday up in New York, co-hosting that on Fox News Channel in the 5 p.m. hour, both of those days. So hope you will tune in or maybe set your DVR over the long weekend for all of that. Here, the radio show is GuyBensonShow.com. That's the online home at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram podcast free every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. So I'm back behind the microphone, was itching to get back because, look, I love a good vacation. Who doesn't? But by the end of the trip, I'm usually ready to get back into the swing of things, get back on the air here with all of you. There's so much stuff happening. We're gearing up toward a very important election. And so I had this date circled. I said, yeah, I'm going to make sure that I can plan all of my flights so I can land in plenty of time to be able to do the show on Thursday, hopefully without a huge amount of jet lag. Now, a crucial component to this plan all working was catching a connecting flight, a close connection in London. So we will get into some of the details of the trip itself. I know last time we all spoke, I was in London doing the show there. Then I was going to Ireland and then on to Greece. And producer Christine really wanted to interrogate me in a Curious Christine segment today about all of it. We will get to that tomorrow on the Friday edition. I wanted to tell this story first because it sort of feels like bookends to today's program. I opened with a travel anecdote, and now I will close with another travel story from this journey. So it was Tuesday. We were in Greece with our Fox News colleagues, a number of them. We were celebrating Kennedy's 50th birthday, if you can believe that. And we had an evening flight out of Greece back to Ireland, which is where we had our returning flight to the United States booked from, and we couldn't change that. We could move the date around, but we could not cancel or change the flight, which is why I would have just much rather flown out of Athens back straight home to D.C., which would have been possible. But no, we had this prepaid flight. We had a prepaid night of hotel that night before the flight out of Dublin. And so we just had to get ourselves from Greece back to Ireland. And that was contingent upon a quick turnaround in London. Not at Heathrow Airport, which is the airport I've been to a number of times, but this is another one, Gatwick, where I'd never been before. So I was totally unfamiliar with the terrain, and we had a delay in Greece of an hour. The plane was late arriving. I think it was like a staffing issue. And so I'm sitting there slowly starting to sweat more and more because already it was going to be pretty close, pretty tight. In London, we were going to have about an hour and 45 minutes, I believe, total, like touchdown to departure of the next flight. When you shave an hour off of that, a little more than an hour, it starts to get very dicey. So we are in the air. We're on British Airways flying to London to then go ahead to Dublin for this airport hotel night of sleep and then get on the plane and come home. And I'm nervous, so I go and I ask the flight attendants on the plane, hey, what exactly is our expected arrival time, and what is the airport configuration in London? Do we have to go through customs? Do we have to go through passport control? Or since we're not actually entering the U.K., we're not, like, going anywhere in England, we're just staying in the same terminal to get on another plane and leave, do we have to go through all that rigmarole? So they brought over the chief flight attendant, the purser on the flight, whose name was Catherine, and she said, unfortunately, the answer 
is not one that we wanted to hear. Number one, yes, we had to go through passport control upon arrival in London. Number two, that would then put us on the other side of security. So we're going to have to go back through security to then try to race to the gate for this short flight over to Dublin. And she was looking at her watch, and you could see her doing the math in her head. And she said, I don't know if you're going to be able to do this. But you might. You've got a chance. You have to run, which sounds so exhilarating, does it not? This sounds very relaxing for the final day of the vacation, the big travel day. So part of the problem was we're in like row 20 in coach. And it's going to take us forever to get off this plane. And the British Airways flight attendant, Catherine, she realizes this as well. And I was absolutely floored by what came next. Because just to get a little nerdy on you when it comes to airlines, because I'm a total airline nerd, as many of you might know if you listen regularly, I'm a United flyer, frequent flyer. And that is United and the Star Alliance network of airlines. British Airways is part of a rival network, One World. The American Airlines partner, bum, bum, bum. But we had to fly it for scheduling reasons. So we have no benefits. We have no status. And yet this angel, Catherine of British Airways, said, if you wait to get off this plane, you will definitely not make it. I'm going to bring you up to first class. Get your luggage. There are some empty seats in first class. We are going to have you sit there for the remainder of the flight, the last, you know, 25 minutes or so, and you can be the very first people off the aircraft when they open the door. And then she said, sprint as fast as you can. So I was blown away that they made this offer. Could not believe that they did it. That was extremely kind. So and I actually tweeted at British Airways and mentioned her by name because that is a really cool thing that she did and did not have to do at all. So we get to the gate. Of course, there's this excruciating delay on getting the jet bridge up against the plane so we can get off. Finally, the door opens, and it's just like, and they're off. She's like, good luck. We had all of our luggage in tow. We ran, full-blown running through this mostly empty airport at that point in the evening. We go to passport control. It's all biometric at this point in the U.K., so they're, like, scanning our eyes and taking photos and stuff, but no human beings that we had to interact with. So we get through passport control. Then we have to race to the next round of security. Also, it feels like everything is about a mile apart in this damn airport. I'm like, boy, this is really testing my cardio here. So we get to the security line. No one is there. And what they do over there, it's not – What typically I've seen in the United States, but what they do in the UK is you show up and you can't get into the security line to see a security agent unless you scan your boarding pass into a computerized system. So we scan our boarding passes and an error message comes up saying declined, denied, too late. Like the flight's closed. You can't make it. The check-in is too late. So we are then shouting for a person, an actual human being to come over and help us. They said, you know, see agent for assistance. So basically their version of the TSA, their guy comes over. We are huffing and puffing and trying to explain what's happening. He said, well, what time is the flight? He's looking at his watch. He's grimacing. He said, I'd have to do a manual override to even get you into the security line. 
I'd have to check with a supervisor. I said, please do. He said, you might not even make it. I said, we're willing to take the chance. So he radioed a guy, and the guy gave him permission, and he had to plug in a code two different times for us to get through. We then raced to the security line. We're, like, taking laptops and throwing them into boxes and taking liquids out and the whole thing. We get through pretty quickly as far as these things are concerned. We're, like, repacking our luggage as we are now hightailing it to the gate, which is, again, another mile away, it feels like. Like, could these things be any further apart? And as we turn the final stretch down toward gate four, they had this big screen up that had the gates listed. And gate four, flight to Dublin, was all in red letters saying, gate closed. So I'm thinking we are completely screwed. But we decided to try anyway, run through the tape. We get to the boarding area. And I noticed that the boarding door has not yet closed. And there's the security guy still sitting there. So we race up to him looking. I can only imagine how disgusting and disheveled and frantic. And he did not seem to be the most motivated worker I've ever encountered. Let's put it that way. But we had just barely made it, it seemed. So he was scanning. We kept handing him the wrong boarding passes. Like we had old boarding passes from the Greece flight. We were just totally discombobulated. He's like, wrong one. Finally, we get him the right boarding passes. He scans them. The little green light comes on. Down the jet bridge we go. The door is, in fact, still open. And we arrive on this flight looking probably our very worst, but we were absolutely thrilled. And the Aer Lingus flight attendants, which is the Irish National Airline, are sort of looking at us like, well, what have these guys just gone through? Very kindly brought us waters immediately. They knew that we needed it. And off we went to Dublin. And we landed very late. We had not really eaten for 10 hours or something like that. So there was a McDonald's right by the airport. We had the cab in Dublin drive us through McDonald's where we went with very American order. We got a Big Mac and McNuggets and fries and we shared them. They had curry sauce for the dipping sauce, which was different. And I wanted to ask about, you know, barbecue or sweet and sour, my go-tos. But I said, you know what? I've pushed my luck enough today. Let's just let it ride. And we crashed, passed out, made it onto our flight the next morning. Again, that hotel was prepaid. If we had been stuck in the U.K., that would have been a sunk cost. We would have had to, like, get up very early to hopefully make the connection in Dublin And all of those travel nightmares were averted by, I would say, literally one to two minutes. And if we had not had every single little thing break our way the way that they did, starting with Catherine on British Airways, I think that perhaps today's return to the microphone might have been disrupted potentially. I'm getting my blood pressure is going up again just recounting the story of what happened. But I'm also sort of proud That we did it. We definitely got our exercise in for the day. And I'm mostly grateful to the people who helped us because they could have not. They could have been less enthusiastic, less empathetic. They could have been like, oh, well, you know, good luck knowing that we wouldn't make it. But they at least help us put ourselves in a position to have a chance. So you're telling me there's a chance. And we made it. 
Christine, have I inspired you? I hope that this story has inspired you. To not travel? Sure. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to do this ever again. No, I don't. I mean, we've talked many a time. I am a hot-headed Italian from New Jersey. I wouldn't be able to deal with that. You would not have made the flight. You would have been too angry and seeing red. You would not have found solutions. You would have probably gotten yourself arrested. I, I wouldn't like go that far. But you saw me with the Uber driver when we went to Hofstra. Remember? Oh, yes. Or ordering him around. Yep. Oh, yeah. And when a few other things have gone south or sideways on the show, you basically race to the closest barrel of gasoline and douse yourself in it and start looking for matches. That's your solution to things. So I don't think you would have made the flight. Boy, have I missed you, guy. <laughs> yes. But I think sometimes I just want to model good, inspirational behavior for you. I think that's really the point of this story. That's the moral of the story. And I hope that you're very grateful and that the audience is also grateful. How self-serving is that? I mean, thank you. Yes. Okay. That was the response I was looking for. And then tomorrow on the home stretch, you can ask me all of your questions about Ireland and Greece and the time that we had. So we'll put a pin in it, save it for tomorrow. Back here, same time, same place, on the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening. It's good to be back. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.